Amen. If you would, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Romans. If you're a guest with us, Romans is in the uh, New Testament. So if you can find uh, the familiar Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll hit Acts and then Romans, and we'll be in Romans chapter 11. Over the past few Sundays, if you've been with us, in the book of Romans, we've zeroed in on the evangelistic pulse of the Apostle Paul as expressed in these chapters. Specifically, we've seen that saving faith in Jesus can only come through hearing the message about Jesus. That's why we do missions. That's why Pastor Joseph is here. Um, because if the word does not go out, if people do not hear the message, well, then they cannot call upon his name. So as his people, as God's people, as the church, we have been, we have been entrusted with a ministry. We've been entrusted, as Paul calls it, the ministry of, of reconciliation. We are God's chosen instrument to proclaim the message of his son to the ends of the earth. And so if we've learned that, that faith comes through hearing, then we understand the necessity of gospel proclamation, don't we? If we understand that faith can only come through hearing the message, then the gospel must be proclaimed. And if we understand that we are His chosen instrument, the church, uh, to proclaim that message, well then we are accountable to Him to do what He's commissioned us for. This morning, I want to address another motivation for obedience in proclaiming the gospel. Because when we look at the necessity of the gospel, surely there's a sense of urgency that comes in, there's, there, and rightfully so. We, we, we feel the need, and we want to meet that need. We, we think of our accountability to God, and there is a fear and trembling that should be involved, that if we do not proclaim that He will, in some sense, hold us accountable for the judgment that comes upon them. But there's a more fundamental motivation for evangelism. In fact, there's a more fundamental um, motivation for all obedience that God calls us to. And I want to show us the motivation for this, and I'm going to call it worshipful obedience. Because really, that's at the heart of all obedience. If we are not gripped, if we are not worshipers of our Heavenly Father, if we do not grow in our love and affection for Him, well, everything else will seem a chore. Everything else will be guilt-motivated. In these three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, they've really been progressively moving forward to a climactic expression of worship that Paul expresses. We see it in, in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Just, just go over there. Paul, as he concludes this mammoth of, of, of a section, he concludes with these words of worship. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. 
To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is where Romans is leading us. This is where, in particular, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and all the theology that we have been bathing ourselves in, if it doesn't result in worship, we didn't get it. Yeah, we might have grown in intellectual knowledge, maybe we wrestled a little bit, but if it didn't bring us to worship, well, we did not have ears to hear. So Paul's outburst of worship comes after he's explored here the depths of God's mercy and grace and salvation. And in particular, Romans 9 through 11 reveals the divine mystery, as Paul will call it, a mystery of God's plan to save all Israel and the implications by which what God is doing with Israel and how he will bring salvation to the nations. However, for us as independent individuals, autonomous beings, there's always the temptation to perceive God's grace and salvation from our own perspective. I mean, we get this, right? We make sure we take care of me, right? We think of everything as it revolves around us. We, we try to fight this, I hope, but we, we often think we're the center of the universe. I know, surprising, huh? Well, here in this passage, we're going to be challenged by that perspective that I know if you're a believer, you, you fight. And when we're tempted to perceive God's work in relation to our perspective, we think little of how God's plan is being worked out in the world. Last night, uh, we, the pastors I mentioned had an opportunity to to meet with Pastor Joseph and Odadson and hear over a meal what the Lord is doing. And, and some of the brothers hadn't heard Pastor Joseph's call to ministry and, and what had been going on. And, and one of the things that was just so striking to me and, and some of the other pastors noted was just you were reminded God was doing things before we were even aware of it. God was doing so much more through seemingly impossible situations. And you know what? He's doing more than just what he's doing in Haiti, more than what he's doing in Jeffersonville. And there are things and stories of the glories of God that we will hear for eternity when that day comes. But when we are so myopic, when we are only thinking about ourselves and, and only look what's right before us, we're tempted to think little of what God's doing around the world, let alone what Paul's going to be talking about with the nation of Israel. And we can fall into a, a trap of pride that we, whether individually or we corporately as Oak Park Baptist Church or we as, a, as, a, as American citizens, we can fall into the trap of pride thinking, well, we deserve God's grace. And those people who don't have what we have, well, they obviously didn't deserve it. Or maybe you look at, at unbelievers or you look at the wickedness in the world and, you, and, and, you're, and you, you might be tempted to think, well, I would never do that. Or I'm glad I made the right decision to follow Christ. And that can breed a sense of, of pride if we do not understand how God's salvation works. And Paul addresses this gross pride in this chapter in verse 18 of chapter 11, look at what he tells the church in Rome. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. We'll get there next week or in a couple of weeks. 
The branches are unbelieving Israel. Don't be arrogant in your thoughts toward them that that you figured it out and they didn't. That's what he's getting after. He goes on in verses 25 and 26. Why doesn't he want them to be arrogant? Lest you be wise in your own sight. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Those verses summarize what we've been looking at in Romans 9 through 11. This is rather staggering if we begin to to grasp the implications. And what I I hope for us this morning is it will produce humility in us in, in a new degree, but also drive us to worship in a higher way than we've ever worshiped before. Paul is explaining God's plan of salvation whereby a judgment has come upon a whole people group, the nation of Israel. And this judgment is a hardening, as you see. And this hardening has come upon Israel, as we're going to see, in order that God may show mercy to the nations. And he says, and when the full number of those whom I am saving among the nations has come in, We don't know that number. We don't know when that's going to happen. Then God's going to soften Israel. He says, I'm going to lift the curse of the hardening so that they will believe in Jesus as their Savior. That's a summary of Paul's argument in these chapters. And therefore, as we dive into this mystery of God's saving purposes for Israel, and by extension, us, we're beneficiaries of the judgment it has happened to others that has brought mercy to us. We're going to see His abundant grace to those who believe. And when we understand the great mercy of God that is shown towards us, that He has seen fit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to include you in His saving mercy purposes, we're not only going to be humbled, But we're going to be enthralled by the love of God. And the beauty and the splendor of His grace, that's when it propels us to obedience, right? Oh, Lord, when I understand what you've done for me, out of gratitude, I'd gladly sing praises to you. I'll gladly, I want to tell people of the goodness that you have shown toward me. So this morning, we're going to see God's abundant mercy towards us as we consider what it means to be a remnant chosen by grace. Hopefully, you've made your way to Romans by now. So let's begin in verse 1 of Romans chapter 11. Paul writes, and he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. First one is to see that God has chosen a remnant by His grace. And that means, first of all, that His promise is secure. His promise is secure. From the opening, I guess that doesn't show up well on the screen, at least that one. All right, it goes good for you. Never mind. From the opening of Romans chapter 9, the issue has, that Paul has been tackling, the issue that Paul has been wrestling, <clears throat> is whether God can be trusted to keep His promises. Particularly His promises to Israel. Because if He can't keep His promises to Israel, well then brothers and sisters, why should we be so secure or sure that He's going to keep His promises to us? The reason that this is an issue is because, by and large, Israel, among whom the Messiah has come, whom Jesus has come from, has rejected Him. The long-awaited King that they had been anticipating, they missed. And not only did they miss Him, but they crucified Him and said, You are not our King, we have only one King but Caesar. So Paul comes along and says, no, no, the king has come and he's risen from the dead. And what they're seeing is, is that this message isn't very popular amongst Israel, but it seems to be more receptive among the nations. And so if you're a Jew at this time, you'll say, well, obviously this isn't God's message for us because we don't believe it. Paul says, no, this is exactly what God said would happen. And this is all about the promises that God made all along to Abraham where he says, through you I will bless the nations. And so in chapter 9, Paul explains for us that Israel's unbelief is not due in some measure to God's inability to save. Some people say, well, maybe God's promises failed. Maybe God wasn't able to bring salvation to them. God, and Paul says, no. This is not due to God's inability. Okay, well, if God's not able to save them, maybe He's just not good. You ever wondered that? Things might, might not be going the way you, you think they should be going. And usually you go one way or another. You say, well, maybe God's not able to do anything. Or you look at the Scriptures and say, oh, God can do all things. Well, maybe He's not good. And you think He's not good to you. Paul says that's not the case either. Instead, verse 11 of chapter 9, he says God's purpose of election stands. God is working things after His own sovereign purposes. And they are good purposes. And he explains in chapter 9 that He's free to show mercy to whomever He pleases. Why? Because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. 
And so apart from God's free grace that he may dispense upon someone, we are all, to borrow the words of ACDC, on a highway to hell. He, he, he is un, under no obligation to mercy any of us. And yet out of his goodness, he chooses to show that mercy to some. So if the problem is not with God, then, well, maybe it's just that Israel hasn't heard the message. Well, in chapter 10, this is where we were the last few weeks, Paul says, no, Israel's problem isn't ignorance, but willful disobedience to God. They've heard the message and they've rejected it. And so now we come back to another question in our passage this morning. If God only elects some, chapter 9, and most of Israel has willfully been disobedient to the gospel, chapter 10, well then has God rejected his people altogether? You see that in verse 1 of chapter 11? I ask then, has God rejected his people? What does Paul say? By no means. That's not what God has done. God has not rejected his people. And then Paul begins to present himself as proof that God hasn't rejected his people Israel. He goes on, he says, for I myself am an Israelite. If God's rejected his people, well, then why do I believe? I'm a descendant of Abraham. And not just a spiritual descendant, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I can, I can show you my birth cards, my birth certificate. Israel is broken up into 12 tribes, and, and Paul identifies his tribe of which he belongs to. He says, I am a physical descendant. I am a Jew. God hasn't rejected his people. I'm an example. And he goes on, and he, he, he says it affirmatively in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We've seen that word before, if you've been with us. That word came in chapter 8, verse 29, where, where Paul says of us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This foreknowledge, it's not some sense of which God looked into the corridors of time and saw what we would do. Now this foreknowledge, as we're going to see, that Paul's referring has been given to Israel, as a nation, is his loyal, promise-keeping love. Sometimes we, we think of it in a more technical sense, God's covenant with Israel. God made a promise to Israel. He foreknew Israel. He, he determined to set his love upon this nation and do a particular work with her. This is what we see, and this will be up on the screen, from Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Amos says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. That, that word, have I known, is the, is the same term that was now kind of used here and by Paul to foreknow. Now clearly God's not saying, I'm ignorant of every other people on the face of the planet. I only know of Israel. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have set my promise-keeping love upon you. I've made a promise to you. And Paul now presents himself as proof that God is keeping his promises to Israel. And why, why, why would he do that? Well, that doesn't seem like that's really helpful. Well, of course you say that, Paul. You're one guy. This is your ministry. 
Well, Paul's tapping into something deeper here. He's tapping into what Israel would have known as the remnant. The remnant. And he's saying, I am a member of the remnant. Now, we don't use that term often. At least I don't. We don't use the term remnant in everyday speech. If we do, we, we think of the remnants or the leftovers or, or the residue after something has been annihilated or destroyed. For instance, my children, they leave remnants of crackers everywhere they go. And I try to teach them, you don't eat crackers like beavers chop on wood because you leave remnants everywhere. That's, that's how I think of a remnant. It's kind of a negative connotation. Something was totally annihilated and there's pieces left. Only in the biblical theme of remnant, it can carry that connotation. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah says, uh, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah to Israel, I am going to judge you and there will only be a stump left. Imagine a great tree. I'm going to chop down that tree and there will just be a stump. There will just be a remnant of it left. You think, wow, there will be nothing left. But in the biblical concept, there's still a positive imagery still remaining even in that negative statement, because there's still a remnant. There's still a pulse. And Israel understood the remnant as a seed of hope by which God would start anew and would raise up His people. In fact, Isaiah says, in that stump, when I chop down that tree, there's going to be a little shoot that pops up out of that stump. And that shoot is going to be the son of Jesse, the coming king of David. And a new tree is getting ready to be born out of the stump. It's all going to start very small, like a mustard seed, Jesus said. And you may not see what God is doing, but that seed will germinate and it will grow. And what does it grow into? A great tree that fills the whole, what? Earth. And what Paul is telling Israel, he's telling the church in Rome, he's telling us that I'm part of that remnant. And this is how Paul develops this remnant theme when he reflects on the prophet Elijah. Look at the rest of verse 2. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Are you familiar with the story of Elijah? Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, go back and read 1 Kings chapter 18, where he dueled the false prophets of Baal. Uh, and they, they had set up your altar do whatever you need to do. Call your God. See if he'll, he'll, he'll light that altar on fire. Elijah goes around. He, he watches them do their thing. Nothing happens. He has his altar over here with wood and sacrifice. He says, well, why don't you just douse that thing with water multiple times? That's kind of the opposite of what you want to do if you're going to light something on fire. They douse it on fire. He prays to God and, and I just imagine like a, a torch coming down, a flamethrower from heaven, 
licks up all that water and causes the altar to come on fire. Not only was he able to call fire down from heaven, but he's able to shut up the skies so that they no longer rain except at his command. And at the end of his life, he doesn't die. He's called up in a whirlwind of fire, like the opposite. Fire comes down, sucks it back up, like Star Trek or something like that. Yet this prophet was very depressed. Because as he looked at Israel, although God had showed himself faithful time and time again and spoken the word, from his perspective, no one believed. Not only did they not believe, they were coming to kill him. That's why, as we read in the pastoral prayer time, he's hiding in a cave, running for his life. And Paul is recalling what God said to Elijah, I have kept a remnant 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. The remnant thing goes all the way back to Noah and the ark. We're, we're maybe more familiar with that story. Where how many people of all humanity were saved? Eight, right? God left a remnant of humanity. So that after judgment came, there's eight people left on the face of the earth, but those eight people start again, right? There's hope for humanity because there was something left. And so in the same way, God reminds Elijah, I have 7,000 within Israel I've kept for myself. I haven't abandoned Israel. And Paul says in verse 5 of our passage, so too at the present time there is a remnant, and this remnant is chosen by grace. Do you see Paul's point? Are you tracking? He's part of the remnant that God has kept for himself among ethnic Israel at this time. And not only Paul, but think of the other apostles and the other Jews who, who came to faith in Christ at the early years of Jesus' ministry and then in the apostles in Acts chapter 2. We get to Acts chapter 4 and it says four or 5,000 souls were added. Now we think, man, that'd be great. 5,000. That's a lot of people. You know what the population of Jerusalem was? It was at least 600,000 people. So 0.8% believed. A remnant. A remnant. I mean, if we think even in our town, just collectively put the churches together, it's nothing compared to the population. It's nothing. And so the remnant is proof of God's promises that they're secure and that He's not finished with Israel. But not only does the remnant signify God's promises secure, but also that God's grace is salvific. Notice this is a, a remnant chosen by, what's the mechanism? Grace. And so we're going to learn what is God's grace. And when God's grace is dispensed, we're going to learn it's saving. It's effective. It works. It snatches people for himself, as God told Elijah. Pointing out that God has not rejected his people, but saved a remnant brings us back to kind of chapter 9 again, right? Back to God's sovereignty in salvation. And to be a member of the remnant is to believe, or to, to be a member of the remnant who believe in Jesus is, is we're going to say, is only based on God's sovereign grace. Look again in verse 5. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The NASB translates verse 5 this way, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Maybe you're using the King James Version, a remnant according to the election of grace. Every way you put it, there's a choosing, and it's on the basis of God's sovereign grace. So what we see in these verses is that a remnant of Israel is among the elect chosen. God chose, in Elijah's day, 7,000 in that period. Chose them, and that grace that was dispensed on them kept them from bowing a knee to the false prophet Baal. And Paul says, in the same way God has chosen a remnant among Israel, of which he is included, and he has caused us to believe in the, in the one true King, Jesus Christ. In the same way God chose a remnant among Israel according to his grace for himself, he uses the remnant to actually preserve the whole. I think of the remnant theme in the life of Lot. Do you know that story? Abraham praying for Lot, who resides in Sodom. And he goes through this ordeal, if there's 50 people, will you spare the city? And he, he works his way down, oh, apologies, Lord, just what if it's not 50? What if it's 40? And he gets all the way, what if there's one? What if there's one righteous person? Will you spare the city? And the Lord says, yes, I will. And what does he do? He plucks Lot out of the city. And once Lot's out of the city, what happens to the city? It's destroyed. The remnant preserves the whole. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 1.9 that will be up on the screen. Thinking of this remnant theme of what God is going to do. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, that's the remnant, we would have been like what? Read it. Sodom. And become like what? Gomorrah. God's remnant is chosen by His sovereign grace, whereby He does not count their sins against them. However, in Israel's case, the presence of a remnant also preserves the nation as a whole. I mean, this is a fascinating thing to think about. I think there's implications even for the presence of the nation of Israel still around today. You don't meet Canaanites, do you? You don't meet Hittites and Philistines. But you meet Israelites, even though most of them do not believe. Why? Because there's a remnant. There's a remnant. And God still has a purpose for them. I think that's Paul's point here. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, this is what I want you to see. If you're a follower of Jesus today, verse 7, you're, you're part of the elect who obtained the promise, verse 7. You've been chosen to be part of God's remnant of all the earth. That's why I'm not really worried about the destruction of the world, because the remnant remains. I'm not saying we don't care for our planet. I'm just saying I'm not worried. And you know what happens when the Lord comes? He snatches us out, and destruction happens, and then we populate the earth. It's where that remnant theme is so precious. And so God's choosing view, as he says, is only on the basis of his grace. It's only on the basis of his favor. It's his initiative. And if it had anything to do with you, then it would cease to be grace. That's what he says. If it's based on works, well, then it would no longer be grace. 
And he's really just applying what we saw all the way back in chapter 9, verse 11. Remember Jacob and Esau? Verse 11, though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Just as God has called a remnant among Israel, who have believed apart from any merit of their own, so God has chosen a remnant among the nations, and that includes you who believe. And He's done it apart from any merit or demerit of our own. That's good news. Can you see why we could never be prideful and thinking, well, I was just better, or I was just smarter, I was just more privileged, or I'm more worthy than those people. You can never think like that. Because apart from the grace of God, there I go. And if God had not graced us, we would not be saved. Do you see that? If God does not grace us, we aren't saved. We're, to, we're completely dependent upon Him. But instead, before the foundations of the world, before you and I had done anything good or bad, as Paul said in 8.29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorifies. He does all the work from beginning to end. Now, do you believe? Yes, you do. But why do you believe? When he calls, why did you come? And the other person didn't. Because he graced you. Because he mercied you. You're Christian, and I know, and I feel, I can even look on some of your faces, I know some of us fight this. And say, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with me. And my appeal to you is not to fight it, but to welcome the glorious truth of God's gracious choice of you and receive it with gladness, knowing that according to his good pleasure, he mercied you by softening your heart. And opening your eyes and unplugging your ears so that when you heard the gospel message, your affections were stirred and you said, I believe. That's what happened. We're, the scriptures know our experience better than we know it. Yes, you made the choice. But as Jesus told the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, did they choose him? Yeah, I got out of the boat, Jesus. Why did you get out of the boat? Because I graced you. That's what Paul's saying. You were part of my remnant. As, as he told Elijah, for myself. I gathered you for myself. But what about the rest then? What about the majority of those not chosen to be part of the remnant? The rest of Israel? The rest of the world for that matter? Well, we see the flip side of this truth, namely that God's judgment is severe. Come back to verse 7. What then? He's kind of summarizing. What, what does all this mean? And concerning Israel, Israel as a nation has failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? Salvation. It was seeking a, a land, the blessing of God. Failed to obtain it. 
Who did obtain it? The elect obtained it. The chosen obtained it. Well, what about the rest? The rest of who? Everybody else who's not the remnant. What happens? God hardened them, right? But the rest were hardened. And if you remember chapter 9, who did God harden to show mercy to another? He hardened Pharaoh, right? It's for this purpose I raised you up, Pharaoh, and he showed mercy to Israel. And so God says, so just as I used sinful Pharaoh, so I'm using sinful Israel to harden them, and I'm going to show mercy to the nations. That's what he's doing. Now, someone may say, well, no, 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 they harden themselves. But the problem is, is the rest of the verse. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. What is Paul getting at? Yes, Israel rejected the gospel, but that's only because God didn't give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Instead, he gives them over to their sinful hearts. So there is a sense, yeah, Israel and the rest of the world, they do harden their hearts. But that's our default position from the moment we're born. We're diseased with sin. And it causes our hearts to be enslaved that we do not want the Lord. And apart from His grace, we will go to destruction. So what happens to the rest? In effect, He gives them a spirit of stupor. They're spiritually lethargic. They have physical eyes, but they don't see. They have physical ears, but they do not hear. And don't you, if you, you're familiar with Jesus' words, Pharisees say, do we, have, do we not see? And he says, if you claim to not see, you would have mercy. But because you claim to see, you have no need of me. He just lets them be. But yet the ones who are weak, the ones who don't have physical eyes, what does he do? They seem to see more clearly than those who have physical eyes. Why? Because God's strange, surprising grace is at work. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 29. I want to put this up on the screen because I think this is helpful and very enlightening. Deuteronomy 29, this is the full context. Moses summoned all Israel and he said to them, You have seen, now think physical eyes here, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land and the great trials that your eyes eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Let's stop right there. What's he talking about? He's talking to the generation of Israel and he's saying, you were there when I rained fire from heaven. When hail came, I turned the the river to blood. You were there when the pillar of fire went out by night and led us, and you were there when the pillar of the cloud by day led us and blocked us off from Pharaoh's army, and and, and I parted the Red Sea, and you walked through it on dry ground. And then when you turned around and you saw Pharaoh's army, I judged them by by bringing the, the waters back over them. You saw it. Here's the deal. They saw all that, and most don't believe. Why? 
I mean, we think, oh, if we could do miracles in front of people like that, oh, then all kinds of people believe. No, because the issue is not physical. The issue is spiritual. It doesn't matter, Jesus said, if one were to rise from the dead, you will not believe. It doesn't matter. Why? Because this is where it pushes. You're not in control of this. You're enslaved. Yes, Israel, you were brought out of slavery, but that was just a picture of a greater slavery that your souls are in. And you were so enslaved that although you saw all the wonders of God, you still don't believe. Why? What does Moses say? But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Why don't you believe Israel? Because God has yet to grace you. And why is it that you and I believed? Because he gave us a heart to understand. He gave us ears to hear. He gave us eyes to see. What was the difference from the first time you heard the gospel and the, and the time you believed? Why didn't you believe the first time? Because he hadn't graced you yet. He might have been working. That calling, that sovereign grace dispensed on you that awakens you like a Lazarus. Come out of the tomb. Hadn't happened. Israel's problem is that God had not given them spiritual eyes or spiritual ears or a softening spiritual heart to see Him and believe. This is exactly what we see in Romans 1. God hands humanity over to themselves because they refuse to worship Him. And the judgment that is so severe, the hardening that comes upon them, is that God lets you go your own way. Paul continues in our passage with the citation of David. This is from Psalm 69, a psalm that's actually applied to Jesus elsewhere. Zeal for your house consumes me when Jesus goes and, and cleanses out the temple. This is that psalm. Here's an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of judgment. And what Paul is doing is quoting David, but we should be thinking the true and better David is saying this about Israel. Let your table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. We had a nice meal with Pastor Joseph yesterday at the Yoakum's house. Thank you, Miss Debbie. Gary took all the credit, but I know it was you. Table is the place of feasting, a place of blessing, right? We experience that at family business meetings. And Jesus says, let their table be a trap. God sometimes lets you just have the blessings of this world so that you think you don't need them. And it's a judgment. And that's some of you here today who've never come to faith in Christ. You think you're just fine. You think you don't really need Jesus because you have all your needs met. You, you, I'll come to Jesus when it's time. Some young people think, oh, when, when I get my fun in, I'll, I'll, I'll come to Jesus. Some of you are getting older and you're still saying that. And you don't see your great need and you think, I got this under control. And everything that this text says is, no, you don't. Because you're enslaved and no one frees themselves.
And as you see here, their backs bend forever. That's just a euphemism for the judgment that never ends. If you die apart from Christ, if He hardens you in this final hardening, this is the destiny of the non-elect, the rest, verse 7. Oak Park, I know that's weighty. That's heavy. As I heard one preacher say, I, I didn't write this, okay? But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be overwhelmed with gratitude right now. I mean, overwhelmed, right? He chose you and graced you, and He didn't harden you. And how long did, I can look at my own life, how long did I spurn the grace of God? And yet He was patient. And He chose to be gracious to me. But what, what was different between me and friends who had very similar upbringings as me, and yet right now have still yet to believe? I pray that they do, and the Lord may still save them. But if they die apart from Christ, what was the difference? He hardened them and He graced me for His own purposes, which are good, even if we don't understand them. The reason we believe is because He gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. If you've never come to a saving knowledge and relationship of Jesus Christ, Here's what my appeal to you is, do not harden your heart. <laughs> Maybe right now you're feeling the conviction, the Word is working in you, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, and you know I'm not right with God. Don't make the mistake of walking out this door thinking, I'll come back next time. Let me ponder this for a little bit, because here's what I want you to hear. Do not spurn the grace of God. Because if He hardens you, if He gives you over, your back will be bent forever. And there will be no opportunity. So if you hear His voice, respond. Come to Him now. At the end of the service, I'll be out in the lobby. There will be pastors at some of the doors. We want to talk to you. Because while you still have breath, there is still hope. Because right now, the hands of God are extended to you saying, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And you may have life everlasting. And the scales on your eyes, just like the Apostle Paul, fall off. And you see. Church family, why don't we stand now? I pray that this fuels us for worship, humbles us, but also fuels us for worship as we Continue to exhort our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I thank You that You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that have been softened so that when Your Word is preached, Lord, it lands on good soil and reaps a harvest. And Lord, I pray that we would come out of here humbled, sobered, realizing how you have snatched us from the fire. That you've snatched us for yourself, and that is good news. You have lavished us with your kindness. Your, you've foreknown us. You have given us your promise-keeping love, and you did not harden us. Lord, I pray for anyone here today, Lord, that, that you would give them eyes to see. Lord, I ask that you would give them 
ears to hear. I ask that you would break that hard heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they may hear and believe and they may join your remnant whom you will keep your promises to. Lord, that's our prayer, and we come to you knowing that you alone can do these things. Do what is beyond what we can ask or ever think. For what is impossible with man is not impossible with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, our, our Savior. Amen.